Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Well, Abs fans, welcome to the show. If you had a little bit of shot of Freud enjoying the loss of the ones that the Oilers had the night before in a <laughs> situation. Well, yeah, you can enjoy many losses. In fact, for the first time in 20 years, Sean, all four Western Conference seats, one, two, three, and four, Lost game one. All that happened in 20 years. Now, we know upsets happen a lot more frequently in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But uh, the simple idea that Vegas and the Avs lost at home and the two second-place teams, Dallas and Edmonton, also lost at home. Further, in game one, uh, unprecedented 2004 through 2022 never happened. It's just further proof how hard it is to win the Stanley Cup. It just is. And, <laughs> it and is. granted, none of and these series are this is going to be over. a crazy year yeah. because there's no really dominant team. That at least there save, wasn't during the regular Boston. season in the West. In the in West. The West. Right. In the West, there was none. Correct. And in the East, you're right, save for Boston. And I, I'd, I'd sort of put Carolina in that category because they had a better year than any Western team did as far as winning percentage was concerned uh, in the East. And and they were playing the same division with the Rangers and the Devils and beat them both out. Now, the unusual thing about the four games last night, they were all routes. And by the way, that was also... 3-1, And including the two in the East, both the lower seeds winning game one on yes. the road. The Rangers beat the Devils 5-1. The and Lightning beat the tar Ooh. out of the opposition in so doing. Lightning 7 Three on the main. And did you watch any of that? Uh, I mean, I, that I didn't get a chance that, to watch that. That one. is I mean, a it was over psychological so case study. That uh, first, uh, you know, whether it's the Leafs, their fans, the media up there, this is a team that I believe now has made the playoffs for seven straight years. In the last six years, they've lost in the first round. They have won a series since two thousand four. Not a single playoff series in nineteen years. And so losing in game one, at least from a psychological perspective, oh, yeah. because in Toronto, you hear about this all the time. Apoplectic. That's, that's they're all they just they waiting about. for the other That's all they drop. really care right. about. You know, they, they the Raptors won the championship in that's 2019, nice. and that was nice. <laughs> and the Blue Jays have won uh, a World Series or two. So, I, I mean, that's, that's okay. That's okay. But it, the Maple Leafs, since 1967, the last year of the original – Six. I've now won the Stanley Cup. All that time. This is a legacy franchise. I mean, it's... Oh, it's, it's one of the crown jewels of the, the NHL. Crown jewels of the National Hockey League always has been. Yeah. Uh, Toronto and Montreal. 
And, you know, during the 1960s, they had a mini dynasty, 62, 63, 64, three straight Stanley Cups, breaking up the previous dynasty, which had been basically the Montreal Canadiens, and the dynasty that was to be in the 1960s, Bobby Hull, Stan McKeon, and the Chicago Blackhawks won one Stanley Cup, and then Toronto jumped in and won the next three. And then after the Canadians won in 65 and 66, the Leafs come back and win in 67, upsetting the Canadians in one of the great Stanley Cup final upsets of all time uh, with uh, the likes of Terry Sawchuck and Johnny Bauer between the pipes. They have been a disgrace to their heritage ever since. And that covers... Yeah, I mean, Not over 55 years. And, and right? keep in mind the Maple Almost 60 years. As you alluded to, you know, you talked about the Canadians won 23 Stanley Cups, of course, they're sort of the New York Yankees of the NHL. Yes. But the Maple Leafs are second. Right. All time with 13. If you're talking about the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, the Canadians don't have to apologize. I'm sorry, the Maple Leafs don't have to apologize to so anybody, in other words, including the Canadians. They were successful pretty much. As anyone save for possibly Montreal, the Maple and, Leafs and they are had sort they had now, two dynasty runs to an extent. The the Detroit Lions. Who you look at the Detroit Lions as people go ah, but you go look back at the forties, fifties with the Detroit Lions. They were they were champions. They were sure. outstanding team. Sure. But that was their heyday, and they never had it since. Right, and and unfortunately Toronto's in that spot. You know, maybe the Lions had about a ten year head start, but the the drought for the Leafs is extraordinary, and. Everybody seems to feel, and I have no reason to disagree, that this is the best of the Toronto teams, and they go out last night, and you blink, and it's two to nothing. Yeah. And then you blink again, and it's three to nothing. Then they come back and make it three to two in the second period. The and you're off. thinking, okay, they may not win this game, but they're not going to get blown out. And then the wheels really yeah. fell off, seven. and by the time the game ended, it was 7-3. So at, at, Tampa's won two of the last three Stanley Cups. They've been in the Stanley Cup final the last three years, and and they're playing with house money. Old uh, old friend Pierre Edward Belmar let off that scoring yes, uh, only a minute did. eighteen seconds in he, punches he it did. in for the Lightning. And he, he he had been on a streak Talk of, about a of guy, years in which he had nine goals this year. He only had four, and he scores the first goal. Look what a guy knows how to pick his teams, doesn't he? He just yeah, goes, goes and gets, he gets he gets he gets the yeah, Stanley finds Cup the good spots. Follow him around. Yeah, he gets a good place there. So the the abs a disappointing start, and let's um let let's let's be honest about it. I, I guess I'll give you that. I'll I'll tell you how I feel about it, Sandy, and I'll I'll leave it alone. Uh, you don't want to lose game one. You don't want to lose game one by two. You don't. It's 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 not the end of the world. But the reason I'm not panicking about it is because all three of the abs goals were basically off of turnovers. Correct. And we are looking cracking. at a team. Cracking goals. Or pardon me, cracking goals. Thank you. Seattle cracking goals. We're all off of turnovers. All three Correct. of the, the cracking goals are Correct. off turnovers. Misplays. You had Ben Myers inserted into the lineup for Andrew Cogliano. He's played a little bit recently, but but it, uh, he's, he's been in and out of the lineup. Uh, Malgan comes comes back. He's yeah. obviously been dinged up. Kale McCarr is back. Josh Manson is back. Uh, you had a lot of people needing to get used to each other in a, in a short span of time. And... When that happens, sometimes you get turnovers. There were miscommunications. Guys looked like they, at times, I thought the defense did not look as aggressive jumping into the play as it could have been. It looked to me as if the Avs would have maybe been able to play this game as their final game of the regular season. They wouldn't have had this performance. But then again, 
they played this game as their last game of the regular season, they wouldn't be the two seed. But I'm not sweating this at this point because there were so many new people thrown back in. Some of them have been out for a while that I expected some discombobulation. I just feel bad for Georgiev who kind of got hung out to dry last night. I thought so too. And you're correct that there were mistakes that led directly to each of the three goals. Mm -hmm. I mean, Taves makes a rare error and it was a doozy that led to the first goal. Right. Giving it away. Uh, Two four checkers got in on him, surprised him. I think the avalanche were surprised by the four checking pressure applied early by Seattle. Mm -hmm. I think they, sort of adjusted to it as the game went on, but early it really bothered them. They weren't expecting it. I think they underestimated Seattle. Now, it feels like it. We probably did too, mm-hmm. but we don't play. Right. So it doesn't matter what we think. They underestimated Seattle. Um, second goal, uh, I don't know if it was a bad change on McCarr's part. It could have been. But as a result of a McCarr change, Manson – moved to the middle of the ice, yeah. left the right wing free and clear. Looked like he was sort of waiting for the puck to come to him. And well, and, and you're right. I, think I, it had I, to do a little I don't know if it was over. more Manson's mistake in uh, moving to the middle to compensate for McCarr leaving the ice or maybe McCarr, as uh, Brian Boucher suggested on the telecast, should have stayed on the ice and should not. It, it, it was a, a rare example of a bad change. Usually when you hear the term bad change, it's a line change. This is a defense pairing change that was botched. But again, it feels and, like the and, kind of thing that happens when you're out of I, I understand. I understand. I thought McCarr played miserably. Manson played miserably. And they didn't connect uh, with the rest of their teammates last night at all. I thought the lack of connection affected some other guys who usually can be expected to play better. Uh, uh, Third goal, uh, you know, Manson just misjudged, and that turned out to be a goal that they probably didn't need but provided a little bit of insurance uh, for Seattle. Uh, Jared Bednar talked about post-game execution, decision-making, and overall sloppiness. Couldn't agree more. Had the same reaction. It struck me that the Avalanche played game one like DU played against Colorado College. DU also missing five or six guys late in the year, tried to reintegrate them into the lineup during the conference tournament in the semifinals of the uh, frozen faceoff mm-hmm. in St. Paul, and they got shut out one to nothing. They seemed not to be able to connect. Same thing happened against Cornell in the regional semifinals the following week when the Cornell Big Red shut them out, as had CC. Right. And there was no connection. It just seemed as if the returning players could not be reintegrated. And I had that reaction watching a number of the abs, most particularly Manson, McCarr, and Mulligan last night, who seemed out of sorts. Uh, And, in fact, the two defensemen were just bad. Um, the second line was bad. Uh, Confer minus two, Lekkonen minus two, Nishushkin minus two. Again, you're talking about one guy uh, in Nishushkin who missed almost 30 games, 29 I think is the correct number, uh, 
Coffer, who's played in all the games, uh, I thought was better than the other two. Lekkonen was terrible uh, last night. Didn't, didn't play his game. Uh, on defense, uh, Gerard and Eric Johnson, a minus one. Uh, Manson, a minus two. Taves, a minus one. McCarr was actually plus one, but I 25-58. Uh, I didn't see him doing a lot. And uh, apart from McKinnon and Rantanen, who were okay, they didn't have anything going. And he, Rodriguez even, did nothing. The bottom three lines did nothing. And, uh, you know, it now uh, it, it becomes uh, not a crisis. I agree with you overall. Win or lose, it's just one game. Uh, but the Kraken showed they had depth last night. And star power didn't beat depth last night. Depth beat star power last night. And if they can't get production out of the second line, I am going to uh, suggest that they break up McKinnon and Renton and put Renton on the second line, maybe even to center the second line, and put Confer on the wing with uh, either Lekkonen or Nishushkin, it doesn't matter whom, and move the one who is off the second line up to the first line. Maybe it's Nishushkin, uh, maybe it's Lekkonen joining Rodriguez and uh, McKinnon. Uh, I, I think I trust Bednar to look at the tape mm-hmm. today and come to a reasonable conclusion. My initial sense would be it's a little early in the series to be breaking up your top line. Yes, I agree. And I felt two years ago that the Avalanche panicked a bit when their series with Vegas went to 2-2. They had been leading two games to none. It went to 2-2. And in game five here, they decided to break up McKinnon, Renton, and, and Landeskog, which I thought was a mistake at the time. Uh, the Avalanche probably should have won game five here. They kicked it away, and by game six, you knew most likely the series was gone, and in fact it was. After taking a 2-0 lead, the Avalanche lost four straight, and I thought part of the problem was they panicked. Now, you know, panic can manifest itself in different ways, but I thought it was a panic move to break up the line. So, Two years later, I'm not necessarily going to say after game one, let's split up McKinnon and Rantanen. Landeskog, of course, is out, as we all know. But uh, I give some consideration to doing it during game two if things are going as poorly as they did last night. And uh, I'm sorry, you're not expecting a lot from lines three and four, but you're not expecting them to be as severely outplayed both ways, as the third and fourth lines were last night by the Seattle Kraken. I think that's fair. And I, I and Jared Bednar today did not rule out the idea of perhaps breaking up Ranton and, and McKinnon. So we, we will see how that goes along. By the way, uh, we'll have uh, at the top of the hour, Ryan Bolding from the Hockey Show right here on Sports. We'll come join us and, and talk about it. But the it, it's it's also fair, I guess, to point out that there that that they were frustrated and you could tell because in in that final period opportunity to get it close back at least three to two there was an opportunity with the ranton and mckinnon line ranton and had the puck brought it down brought it down uh that that left side of the ice felt like they had a head of steam going 
Nathan McKinnon was offsides by a full stride. Not a little. Not not the Gabe Landeskog skate thing from field. A, a full stride. And the cameras caught Rantanen visibly very angry. Uh, you know, even saying, saying a couple words that we can't say right here. Well, we could, but well, we'd lose our license. We, we'd like our but, yeah. <laughs> license to but the, remain in place. The uh, You could tell there was frustration. And some but Rantanen the- was, was well defended in the sense that he had to do a little bit of dipsy-do at the blue line, mm-hmm. and it threw off the timing right. so that it, you're exactly right. But you can, can tell how full frustrated the they are. Oh, okay, well, of course. And and there was frustration from McKinnon, uh, who was stopped by Grubauer. And uh, I guess if you have a Stanley Cup, you can say this, but somebody asked McKinnon after the game what he thought of Grubauer, mm-hmm. and his answer was one word, nothing. Oof. Oof. And a, Don a friend of mine, right there. Uh, upon hearing that quote, texted me back this morning and said, uh, Grubauer, after last night, could have said the same thing about McKinnon. Yeah. If asked about McKinnon, Grubauer could have said, I didn't see anything special. I saw nothing from McKinnon that I couldn't handle. And the fact of the matter was, at least for one night, that was true. And I, I do tend to be a little more forgiving of Georgiev, but I would also say if you had your choice last night between the two goaltenders, there was no doubt that Grubauer was the better goaltender. And if that continues for three more games at some point during this series, if there are three more games like the one last night where Grubauer is that much better than Georgiev, then the Avalanche uh, could very easily lose this series. However, it, it, it is just one game. I don't think Grubauer can keep it up. His history suggests he can't keep it up. But he was terrific last night, and McKinnon should have acknowledged that. I don't know yeah. why, why. Probably just uh, a it, crummy mood. A sour mood. Right. Uh, frustrated. This is a guy that and, really hates losing. You know, the, the, uh, the notion, though, that the Avalanche have been a one-line team offensively, I mean, They've gone 31, 7, and 4. Yeah, as you've pointed out, that's uh, not 31, 8, fair. and 4 now in their last 43 games, relying almost entirely on McKinnon and Rantanen to generate offense. Mm-hmm. Certainly five on five. Uh, you know, the power play, they've been other contributors. But here, here's what I noticed last night, too O'Connor, Nieto, Morgan, and Myers. Played less than 10 minutes, five on five in the game. Okay. Eller played 12, 11, and Newhook played 11, 20. So you're talking about six forwards, right? Mm-hmm. On your third and fourth lines, who five on five weren't a factor. And we know Seattle's one of the best five on five teams in the league. We do. Statistically, that Correct. bears out. They're not great on special teams, their power play is not great. Uh, they didn't score on the power play last night. Uh, their penalty killing is not very good either, but it was just fine last night. But again, you're reintegrating people back in. You're changing your two power play units with the return of Kale McCarr. On the other side, though, for the Kraken, all but three forwards who dressed out last night played 15 to 21 minutes in game one. So 
There you have it. It is. It was a, a poor game for the Avs. Where does it lead for game two? I, I, I can't imagine you'll see that back-to-back performance like that again because we haven't really seen it all year from this team. But what's your worry level? What's your concern? 303-831-1340 is the number to call or text. We'll have more on this game, figure out what went wrong and how they can get it right in game two next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Bad loss for the Avalanche in game one of the series with the Seattle Kraken. 3-1, they'd fall at home, and that's obviously not the way you want the series to go, although uh, everyone in the West had the exact same thing. Uh, yesterday, all four home teams and lost. And Toronto and New Jersey so back in the East. Off you go. But for, for the Avs who, who played this game rather poorly, I, I looked at some of the more advanced stats uh, involved with it. And let, let's just look at the idea that I, I posited that I'm not panicking about it. They didn't play well. But I think the addition, bringing Josh Manson back plus Kale McCarr, you talked about how actually sort of their miscommunication yeah. uh, led directly to a goal. Right. I mean, look, look at some of these numbers. So when you look at, at the idea of defensive zones. So you have uh, that some of the board stands defensive zone retrievals. How many times yeah. you've you retrieved right. it, right? Okay, 51 to 58, favor the crack, and that's not a big deal. Botched retrievals, though, where the puck gets mishandled yeah. or something like that. Six out of 58 for the Kraken, 13 out of 51 for the Avs, more than twice as bad, and the percentage makes it even worse. So those are the kind of things that, that's, again... That's the game I saw. I don't have yeah. those numbers you do, but that corresponds, corresponds. to the game... Uh, I was the, the number of times that the, the zone yeah. exits, yeah. the amount of times you can bring the, the bring out of your out of your own zone, yeah. uh, forty four for the Kraken, thirty seven with the Avs, yeah. exits with possession about the same, but then failed exits when you're trying, and then it gets taken again by the offense in your zone. Yeah, nine for the Kraken, fifteen for the Avs. They so this, this is where your they, analytics they, they match up with team. what your eyeballs. And uh, you know, saw. I try to watch these games from. Uh, a nonpartisan point the of view. The were sloppy in their and, own zone. And, and the, the abs weren't good in their own end. Uh, the decision-making was poor on, on certain line changes that we saw. Uh, execution was bad. Uh, Bednar, who is one of the few coaches who's worth a spit during those in-game interviews on the bench, mm-hmm. uh, talked about last night during the second period, which, by the way, was their best period. I don't understand the analysts last night who were saying, Third period was great, and they can carry that into game one. Third period wasn't great. The Avalanche had a 16% expected goal share in the third period last night, five on five. Um, that is not good. 16%. That That is not good. Five on five, they got whipped in the first period. They got whipped in the third period. Second period was a little better. Uh, not, not a whole lot. They certainly didn't dominate the second period, but it was, was their best period. Uh, Apart from all that I just indicated, they were a little unlucky in the second period. Rodriguez took a shot that caromed off Grubauer's glove and went wide. Could have gone in. Um, A few moments later, Byram's wrister hit Grubauer's shoulder and bounced off the crossbar. Could have gone in. Could have gone post Mm -hmm. and in. Crossbar down. Yeah, a little luck. Did not. Sure. uh, uh, You know, so you, you throw in... Poor execution, 
poor decision-making, sloppiness, particularly in your own end, and bad puck luck, and you get a 3-1 loss to the Seattle Kraken in game one. The Avalanche seem to specialize in losing to teams playing in the playoffs for the first time in the first game. Same thing happened to them in 2003 against the Minnesota Wild. Uh, You may remember, Sean, there was good news and bad news after that game one loss to the Minnesota Wild. Mm -hmm. The good news, and I know because I was there for all three of the ensuing games, is the Avalanche won all three led by the hottest line in hockey the second half of that year, Peter Forsberg, centering for Milan Hayduk and Alex Tangay. The bad news was that they proceeded to blow the 3-1 lead and lose the series in Game 7 in what was Patrick Waugh's last game when Andrew Burnett beat him in overtime, much as the Wild had beaten the Avalanche in overtime, or would beat the Avalanche in overtime 11 years later in a Game 7 scenario that was somewhat similar although that was a home ice series where the home team won every game until game seven when the Wild won the game. But my point is the Wild were in the playoffs in 03 for the first time, and they beat the Avalanche in game one, much like Seattle beat the Avalanche Mm -hmm. last night. And the Avs did come back and take control over that series before blowing that series. They had control over it before they (laughs) blew it. It's usually how it works, right? You have have it for a minute, then you That's why I'm suspicious of momentum, and I'm especially suspicious of a carryover effect, even if what the analyst said last night was true, that the third period was something the avalanche could take heart in and carry over. Even if it was true, I don't believe in carryover effect. Game two will be different from game one. I'm not saying it'll be better. I'm saying it'll be different, that different guys will be good, Different guys won't be as good as they were in game one. You know, I'm not saying they can't lose the game. I'm just saying there'll be a different game. And I don't believe in carryover effect. That's why, in spite of all of our instincts, because we want to analyze the game last night and pick it apart, let's do it in the context of believing that game two and probably the rest of the series for however many games they play, it, not one will be closely resembling the one we saw. I don't think so. And and there's no real history with the Avs, this Avs, to believe that that's going to be the case. They're going to have that issue again. They, they will tighten it up. Another day or two of practice will really help. These were the kind of uh, mistakes that were bad. Now, the one thing that they're going to have to focus on, Sandy, I think that in reality that they can't get around, is that forechecking. And I'll, I'll give you another stat that's kind of interesting when you look at the shots it was 48 48 right 27 on goal for the crack into 25 for the apps now if you're gonna look at what they equate to scoring chances and scoring chances is kind of nebulous yeah Uh, yeah yeah, it's one person's scoring chance they came out somewhat similar another person's uh, abs end up with 18 crack of the 15 but that there's a little judgment call in that that's right there's a little pro football focus vibe to that yes yeah a little bit subjective this isn't Shots off of the four check. Yes. Yes. 11 for the Avs. Yeah. 18 for the Kraken. That way, has way to stop. Too many. Uh, the way too many. And, That's more than half the shots on goal they had. Yeah. The game, well, they finished right? with 48, but it's more than half the sh- yeah, shots on goal oh, it well, is. Shots on goal. They had 27 on goal, 18 off the four check. The Avalanche were not. 
prepared for whatever reason for the manner in which the Kraken came at their forwards. They were simply not ready for the neutral zone play by the, by the Kraken, and they were not ready for the... They did what a lot of teams are kind of afraid to do. As soon as the Avs came into the zone, instead of kind of coming back and turning into a shell, the Kraken went right at them. In a lot of cases, went right at well, the skater. Did you notice on the penalty kill, they did the same thing? The Avs are they did not hang back. They pressured the Avs. They pressured the, penalty the, kill. the puck carrier. They changed their penalty kill. Now, a penalty kill has not been great for Seattle, but they have changed it. And you're exactly right. That's how they played five-on-five, five too. They were not afraid of the avalanche speed. They were willing to take the gamble on it, but they were going to head them off at the pass. The proverb, the thing they were just going to meet them there and uh, go speed for speed. And I thought that was a really interesting and very smart approach by Seattle, and it worked. But once the Avs are ready for it, they have more than enough ability huh? to adapt. Let's let's remember during the season that from the Avalanche perspective, in three games against Seattle, one, one, and one. So they didn't exactly dominate these guys nope. during the season. The good news is that the Avalanche all year were a better road team than they were a home and team. They were in the last and playoffs I believe, as well. I believe the one win they got came in Seattle, not here. If I'm not mistaken. I'll have to, I'll have to check on that. You, will, you are you, you are you usually will, right on these you things. Will, you will correct me if I, I'm wrong. I will simply take I, it as gospel. I think Seattle is a great place for a hockey team, and they have good fans, but they're not quite like the Vegas fans were uh, in, it's not at crazy. the beginning. Yeah. Where, where it was just crazy, and it was a major... It was major, the first thing that's ever been in the city. major right. home. I, I don't believe crowds create an advantage in and of themselves, but they do create an atmosphere that pumps up players. And I think Las Vegas had that. I'm not sure Seattle has it to the same extent. We'll find out. I mean, but obviously, we'll, we'll find th- out. there's a lot and, of love And they'll for be that going team. crazy for the playoffs. The, the first Avs game's the uh, first meeting on Friday, October 21st, Seattle did beat the Avs 3-2 to in Denver. That was back in October. The next meeting was in January on the 21st, and the Avs beat Seattle 2-1 to in a shootout uh, in Seattle. Right. Their final matchup in March, not that long ago, again in Denver, yes. the Avs lost 3-2 to in overtime. Right. So, see, so Seattle from the is, Seattle perspective, they're not afraid of playing here. Two zero and one in three games this year against the Avalanche, and make it now three zero and one in four games. So, if you haven't been beaten by the defending Stanley Cup champions, not scared of them in regulation one time in four games this year, why would you be intimidated? By their speed or anything else they might. And throw maybe at. that's the best way of describing it. And I want I want to hand that to, to the Kraken. The we know that the speed of the Avalanche intimidates. We know we we still have the uh, the tape from the Lake Tahoe game a couple years ago with Nathan McKinnon coming down with the puck and the poor defender going, Oh boy, with you know, mic'd up. Uh, give them credit because if there's one way to describe how the what the Kraken looked like, they looked unintimidated and unimpressed. The and they line. crowded McKinnon, and it frustrated him. Um, McKinnon made a beautiful pass to Rantan for the goal. Oh, beautiful pass. Yes. Great execution by Rantan, who uh, choked up on the stick or choked down <laughs> and uh, was able to deflect with the heel of his stick and, and beat Grubauer. But, you know, they, they were frustrated. Uh, more often than not, last night, those two – and that's your top line. The other three lines just weren't dangerous. 
And I thought Seattle was dangerous, particularly off the forecheck, and you just had the numerical evidence. Yeah, there is evidence that. of it. And I think that part is what's uh, what's interesting. And that's that's when you look at the, you know, I, I they don't always sync up, and that's where people get confused. But that's where the, the analytics and your eyeballs see the same thing. And, and that's what analytics should do. If you're a knowledgeable person watching a game it just and you have a sense of it later, more you drilling, go to the you know. analytics and the analytics should support what, more you, less what saw. you saw. And if given the choice, I'm old fashioned. I, I guess if they conflict, I, I'd be more inclined to go with the eyes over the analytics. But more often than critics believe, when it comes to analytics, the numbers analytics lie. confirm what you saw. Right. They don't contradict what you saw. Yeah, and what we saw here is basically, look, that's that's the summary. The Avs were not careful in their zone, and they were not prepared for the aggressive forecheck of the Kraken. And and otherwise, if you look at virtually, and I'm, I'm looking at a list of more than 25 different advanced metrics. Otherwise, the game was pretty close. But the Kraken had massive advantages in shots off of the forecheck and were far more efficient in their own zone. Good for and, you. And that's, well done. That's exactly what it is, right? I mean, that's what we're looking at. So when the, the bright side of that for the abs, and if you're Jared Bednar and you're the players, well, everything lines up. We know what went wrong. As long as you know what went wrong, you can fix it. So the problem in this case is straightforward to identify. Look, you got to be tighter on changes. You have to be making sure you communicate better with your defensive partners. Some of that's just rust and timing. And the abs need to know that the Kraken who have yet to lose in regulation to the Avalanche, are, until you beat them at least, not going to change their approach. What you saw in game one you, is you what need, you will see again. You need to beat them, uh, preferably in regulation. That would their be, own game. That, and, and match their intensity, which the Avalanche did not do last night for whatever reason. The deal with the Avalanche that is of some concern and gives off a bit of a negative vibe that we never detected a year ago. They had to go like hell to finish first after starting 2017 and three Mm -hmm. through the first 40 games. They won 20 games out of the first 43, 20 and 20 out of the first four. They went 31. Seven and four in the last 42 games with all the injuries they had. What concerns me is that they had to expend a lot of energy in so doing. During that time, McKinnon and Rantanen, too, were as hot as two players can be, especially five on five, but also on a power play. It, it, no one was hotter than those two players as a duo, and I include McDavid and Dreisaitl over a similar stretch of time. Quite fair. And McDavid and Dreisaitl, from start to finish during the regular season, they're the best, hands down. But during essentially the second half of the season, the best duo was McKinnon and Ranton. Mm-hmm. Ranton had an enormous number of even strength goals this year. I think he might have been number one in the league in even strength goals. He was with about a week to go in the season. I know that. What I'm saying is that if you combine what could be some fatigue, perhaps more psychological than physical, with 
the rust that Manson showed last night, yeah. that even McCarr showed last night. McCarr took one pass that I remember in particular in his own end. The puck must have jumped 15 feet off his stick, and it was one of those giveaways. And there wasn't heavy forechecking pressure. I don't ever remember seeing Kale McCarr receive a pass and have the puck bounce off his stick 15 feet the other way. Bad that game. could have led to a direct giveaway it, it and a possible goal. It didn't, but it could have. And I would expect that would be better in game two, but there's a combination of rust and fatigue that may be problematic as the playoffs progress for the Colorado Avalanche. We will set this aside for the moment, but we still want to know what you think. The uh, call-in text line is 303-831-1340, but we'll turn our attention to the Denver Nuggets who have an opportunity to, uh, well, run the Timberwolves out of the gym one more time tonight. We'll do that next on My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets won their game one, unlike the roommates over at Ball Arena. The Avalanche, they got it done uh, in, well, almost effortless fashion against a Minnesota Timberwolves team that did not look ready, that did not look interested, that looked worse than yeah. fighting with each other. And the, uh, the Nuggets have an opportunity to really put it to the Timberwolves of the win tonight. And if you want to go ahead and find a place to watch it, we've got a spot. But literally, I mean, come join us. Sandy and I are going to be there. We're going to go to Denver Stiff's night out. It's the Nuggets watch party for game two over at the Sportsbook Bar and Grill in Highlands Ranch. It's easy to get to just off of Broadway in C-470. I will have prizes to get away, uh, to give away. As a matter of fact, I was, uh, I was helping Nate Lundy. Uh, you know from, of course, Altitude and uh, the, the man who runs My Life Sports here. I was helping him pick out some prizes to give away. Uh, you'll be able to watch the game with other fans, have a great time. A tip-off is at 8, or at least as close to it, depending on what happens with the early games. Uh, we'll be there starting at 7.30. Sandy will oh, be there. Be? I'll be there. Uh, Nate's going to be there. We're going to have uh, we're gonna have some games, prizes, some fun things to do along with watching the game. So hopefully if you are looking for a place to watch it and want to be with other Nuggets fans, uh, come on out, say hi. And, and and enjoy the game. We're looking forward to to seeing you. But Sandy, this was the we've first got game. Lakers Memphis just as, right. As, I, was, I mean, you, Lakers you can, Memphis at five thirty. Miami Milwaukee at seven. Minnesota at Denver at eight. Yeah, and I, boy, that Lakers Memphis game is an interesting one. Very. Uh, so I mean, you'll catch the tail Very. end of that, or show up earlier. Hey, you know yeah, what? Whatever absolutely. you're doing, have some fun with it. But we're looking forward to seeing uh seeing you out there if you would join us. But. This was the first playoff game, but game one for Jamal Murray since September of 2020. It was the first home playoff game since May of 2019. Fact, it was uh, Jamal Murray's first playoff game in Ball Arena because it was called the Pepsi Center the last time he played there. And there were early jitters, missed his first five shots, uh, talked about it after that game. And said you want to play so good it's much anticipated sometimes that could affect you too much you got to slow down get my legs back and just play basketball and again that's very much what it, it looked like and this is one of the things i think a, a challenge for the nuggets and I'm, we're talking about a team which they blew out of the water in game one but jamal murray has remarkable talent and i've talked about this before sandy i think that I don't question Nikola Jokic at all, but there are guys that, that hate to lose more than they like to win. 
I think Jamal Murray is one of those guys. I'm not sure Nikola Jokic is, and I'm not. You don't necessarily need him, uh, all your guys to be like that. But that also leads Murray at times, when things aren't going well, to feel like I'll take this over. That's just the way he's tended to play. And when Jamal Murray can get into the flow of a game because the rest of his teammates are getting the job done and everything looks good, Jamal Murray can absolutely explode. But the funny thing is you go look at the the games in which he's been really big or bubble Jamal Murray even back then or even during the regular season. It's not when Jamal Murray has a big 30-plus type game. Very rarely are the rest of the Nuggets playing poorly. He gets those big numbers when the rest of his team is playing well when he's augmenting the offense instead of trying to carry it. And and I think we saw a little bit of that, but then he sort of appears he sort of realized it, settled down, and and got going. And And found other ways to get in. And and found himself in the end a very good game. And and I think that's a good sign because the the Nuggets and and Murray sort of work in that way that if the Nuggets are playing poorly, Jamal Murray will try to, he'll try to get you back in. But that's not when he's best. Well, uh, let's look at, the numbers from the game the other night for him. 24 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists, 1 block, just the 1 turnover. So he's missing early, but he wasn't turning the ball over. Plus 24 in 33 minutes. 8, eight boards, he 8 found, assists. found ways to get in the Only game one defensively. Turnover. He got on the floor for mm-hmm. loose balls. That, he said, helped him. Uh, in other years, maybe even back in 2019, back in the old days, he would try to shoot his way out of a bad shooting stretch. Keep shooting. He didn't necessarily do that the other night. And I don't care about his percentages as long as he's scoring more points than he is taking shots. And if if, if that number uh, 24 the other night is higher than the number of shot attempts, I'm I'm fine. He can go eight for 27, mm-hmm. 19, whatever. And, you know, if 24 points comes out of it because he gets the line a little bit and he makes a few threes along the way, uh, you know, I, I thought the way he found himself the other night was a little bit different. And, again, Bubble Murray averaged 26 and a half a game. 6.6 assists, 4.8 rebounds, and shot better than 45% from three-point range. We will not see that player in these playoffs, and the only danger that that might present is that if things aren't going at that pace early on, he might try to shoot his way out of it. He did not do that the other night, and I thought that was one of the major positives uh, for the Nuggets. On a night where Jokic had 13 points and didn't need to score more than 13. They needed him on the boards with 14 assists. I'm sorry, 14 rebounds and 6 assists, 1 steal. Jokic and Murray combined at how many turnovers? That would be two combined, one for Jokic and one for Murray, and they combined for 14 assists. If 7-1 to on down to 2-1 to is the ratio of assists to turnovers between those two tonight, they will win the game in a breeze. It will not be close. 
Uh, the difference in the games last night, opposed to the first 10, the three games we saw last night, was you had real marksmanship <laughs> last night. And as a result, a 17, I'm sorry, a 17-point win by Cleveland, a 13-point win by Atlanta, and a 14-point win uh, by the Phoenix Suns. Uh, the Boston Celtics shot 55.8%. The Cleveland Cavaliers shot 49.4%. And the Phoenix Suns shot 58.8% last night on the field. So, uh, yes, there were other reasons, but uh, marksmanship had a lot to do with it. And we saw for Cleveland, Levert go crazy and especially Garland. And we saw for Boston, old friend Derek White, Right. Go off for 26 points, seven rebounds, two assists, and a steal with three block shots thrown in in 34 minutes. And he was the high-scoring man apart from Tatum for Boston with those 26 points. And uh, Booker looked like himself last night. Booker took over that game last night. And uh, Durant stepped aside and let Booker takeover and I thought Phoenix looked terrific last night. I thought the best looking team during those three games last night was Phoenix to me. Now Phoenix lost the first game. Yep. So did Cleveland. So they had incentive. Uh Boston is Boston can win with its C minus game against Atlanta and probably either get the gentleman sweep five games or the literal sweep, which would be four Talking straight. Talking about how scoring is up, too, by the way, Sandy, and I've been kind of keeping track of this, but the uh, there have been 13 playoff games thus far in, in this opening round. The average score of the winning team, average, is 115.5. I mean, that's the number you have to get to. That that includes the, the a couple low totals here and there, but the average score of a winning team in the 13 NBA playoff games that have happened so far, is 115.5. It is worth noting. That's about what it was last night, maybe a little more than that last night in the three games. So uh, it's yes. it's been up there almost from the start of the playoffs. Yeah, it was 15 and a half. Yeah, because you had those and two big the, ones in the 107. The, yep. the Nuggets played an uncharacteristic uh, playoff game by this year's standards in scoring only 109 but how's this for the and staff? holding the opposition to 80. But 80. Believe it or not, when you think about how many games are happening in an NBA season, how many bad games, how many bad teams, it, it was sort of lost in the shuffle because nobody really did the work But the, since game one. The 80, 80 points they held the Timberwolves to, a playoff team, that is tied for the lowest score that any NBA team put up this year, regular season, Nobody was in the 70s. No. no team finished with lower than 80 points in a game. Nobody finished with 79 or fewer a whole game. Yeah. 80 was the low for the whole wow. year. For teams like the Houston Rockets, 80 points was right. the low Detroit output. Pistons always scored 80 or more. 80 points. What Minnesota had was tied for the lowest score in the NBA this season under any circumstances. Didn't the Pistons go something like 16 and 66? Yeah. But yeah. they always scored 80 points. Got to at least 80. Every time, everybody did. I mean, this is potentially such a one-sided series. I mean, the, the Nuggets are better. They can certainly play faster. They don't seem to hate each other's guts. That helps. Yeah. Not sure if you can say that about Minnesota. 
we did uh, informally a uh, bit of a roundtable today at lunch uh, over in a well-known establishment that uh, we'll be hearing a lot more about in the coming days and weeks. And uh, hardcore sports fans. Oh, yes. Right? I assembled. know of whom you speak. And yes, uh, yes. Uh, the question that was raised had nothing to do with the Minnesota Timberwolves and only with the Denver Nuggets that they not revert to the mindset that engulfed them in Houston late in the year, uh, caused them earlier in the year to actually lose a home game to a 16 and 66 team, the Detroit Pistons, and uh, cropped up occasionally more often than you'd want in the final five weeks of the season. If the Nuggets stick to their business tonight, and I know that sounds very general and not very analytical, if they stick to their business tonight, there's no way they'll well, they, lose. You're right. They just don't have to be that good. Do they have the capacity to beat themselves, not be able to get out of their own way, get bored? And we've yeah, seen it happen. We've seen it happen. Um, but the. I threw out the head-to-head with Minnesota this year. It's almost meaningless yeah, it because there were so many guys on both sides missing from the various games that were played uh, who are participating now uh, for better and for worse. Uh, I just don't think it means anything. And I can't imagine, at least until they get to Minneapolis, that the Nuggets have much to worry about. It doesn't Even tonight in game like two, if they – Stick to I think their you hit it business. Right. Handle their business. And, Just play your game. You know, you don't have to be great. You don't have to be great in every aspect. You don't have to be great offensively. But bring some of the same defensive chops you brought to game if one. They, if they come with a with a, the kind of defense they came, Minnesota will fold by They'll be they'll uh, fold. Listen, you hold them to a hundred, you'll win, and and probably win quite easily by double digits. We'll be out at the uh, Sportsbook Bar and Grill at Highlands Ranch watching it. So if you want to uh, come out and say hi, uh, you can do so. Make sure you join us there. Nuggets, of course, will tip off as the late game tonight on TNT Expectation at 8. We'll turn our attention back to the Avalanche Show, the hockey show right here on Miley Sports. Correspondent for NHL.com, Ryan Bolding will join us next.